Good Friday is my favorite day of the year because I think for the last five years, it's the only time I've gotten to sing the old rugged cross. And there's something about that song that captures something that I think we miss so often in our daily lives. And, and, and when, when he talks about cherishing that old rugged cross, and to that cross I will ever be true, there's something that, that just grips my soul. And once a year I get to sing that song with all of you and to be reminded of something sacred that happened that I dare not ever forget. You know, they say that, good, uh, that Easter is the Super Bowl for Christians. And they say that Good Friday is the prelude. People act like Good Friday is the undercard and the Super Bowl is the main event. For those of you who like sports, you know what the undercard means. It's all the people you never heard of who are trying to make it big. All the big people get to make the main card, but the no-names are the undercard. You end up dealing with the undercards, but you pay to see the people in the main draw. Those are the ones you go to prime time for. Many people consider Easter to be the main event. It's mandatory. But Good Friday, it's optional. Just look around. I guarantee you on Easter morning, there will be more people here than there are here tonight. And in fact, I doubt that there's any church where there are more people on Good Friday than there are on Easter. Yet, it's quite possible that Good Friday is the most important day in the Christian calendar. Last year I talked about what it means to be a Good Friday Christian. And I was tempted to preach the exact same sermon this year. Because without Good Friday, there would be no Easter. Without any death on the cross, there would be no empty tomb. And without his death, there would be no resurrection. And while all of those things are true, they might possibly still miss the point. Good Friday isn't just the prelude to Easter. It's not just a stop on the way to Easter. Good Friday itself is the culmination of Christ's work on earth. It was the very thing he lived for. Easter is the exclamation mark to the statement that Jesus makes on Good Friday. No, I'm serious. People think it's all about Easter, but in reality, in some sense, it's about what Jesus says on Good Friday, and Easter is the exclamation mark. In John chapter 19, verses 28 to 30, John writes, Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus hangs on the cross, dying in agony, and he says, it is finished. It's finished. It's done. It's completed. The work is done. Everything has been accomplished. He doesn't come out of the tomb on Sunday morning saying, it's finished. No, it's finished not on Sunday morning at the empty tomb. But on Good Friday, on the cross, with darkness coming over the land. I want you to pause for just a moment and consider that fact. Jesus does not say it is finished at the empty tomb on Sunday morning. 
He says it is finished on Good Friday on the cross with darkness coming over the land. It is finished on Good Friday, not Easter Sunday. It is finished on Good Friday, not Easter Sunday. John is the only one who tells us that Jesus says it is finished because it's a key theme to his gospel. In John chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Then he says in John 5, 36, For the works the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me. And at the Last Supper, in John chapter 17, verse 4, Jesus prays, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. So Christ's death on the cross is the culmination of everything he has been doing, and it was the very thing he had been living for. It is finished. Something amazing happened at the cross before the resurrection. Something major happened at the cross before the resurrection. History was changed on the cross before the resurrection. The curtain was torn in two. The ground shook. Tombs burst open and the dead came to life. All before the resurrection. And Jesus says, it is finished. On the cross, on Good Friday, before the resurrection, not at the empty tomb, not on Easter Sunday. But that begs the question, what did Jesus finish? What was the work that God gave him to complete? What was it that Jesus finished on the cross? What did Jesus finish on the cross before the resurrection? Many times when I ask people about the cross, they tell me it was to save me from my sins. And when I ask why Jesus had to die, they say it was to take away my sin. Jesus did die for my sin. And Jesus did take away my sin. But those are just a part of what happens at the cross. And in fact, those aren't even close to what John has in mind when he writes his gospel. Even the Apostle Paul considered there to be much more. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul writes, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Paul says, For what I received... I passed on to you as of first importance. What Paul, when Paul talks about the gospel, he doesn't leave out Good Friday and Easter. He says they are of first importance. They are vital parts of the story. He says they are necessary. We, we can't go on unless we understand those things. But as he refers to them, he couches them in a larger narrative because he says it was according to Scripture. So even as people quote this passage, they have to realize that Paul only sees dying for our sins as part of the story. Two of the things that Paul talks about as of being first importance happen after Good Friday. But Jesus says it's finished on Good Friday. So while it's true that Jesus died for our sins, it's important for us to understand that Paul and Jesus are not talking about the same thing. 
You catch my drift? You see what I'm saying? If we equate what Paul says here about Jesus dying for our sins with what Jesus says is finished, we will miss the point that Jesus was trying to make for himself. It's absolutely true that Jesus died for our sins. But many people, and maybe some of us, stop there. They think that's what the cross is about. They reduce Christ's work on the cross to simply paying our debts or taking our place on the cross. And while those things are absolutely true, church, reducing the cross to simply saving us from sin misses the larger story. It runs the risk of taking part of the truth and making it the whole truth. And when we take part of the truth as the whole truth, it becomes an untruth. You see, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes to address theological questions that were happening in Corinth. He's not primarily trying to answer what's the meaning of the cross or to even explain what Jesus said was finished on the cross. He takes the cross and answers questions that they ask about theories of the afterlife. So unless you are concerned about various theories about the afterlife and what it means to be baptized for the dead, then maybe tonight we shouldn't be thinking about 1 Corinthians 15. What did Jesus finish on the cross before the resurrection? If you have your phones or like to take notes, write this down. Ten things that John tells us Jesus finished on the cross on Good Friday before the resurrection. I think this is going to be a Tim Jang record, by the way. Ten things that Jesus tells us Jesus did on the cross before the resurrection. Number one, new creation and new exodus. Number two, taking away our sins. Number three, the day of the Lord and the harvest. Number four, healing and restoration. Number five, being fully known and knowing fully. Number six, being lovingly protected. Number seven, facing evil and destroying its power over us. Number eight, friendship and mission. Number nine, eternal life. And number 10, rest. If you can't write that fast, don't worry. I'm going to go over each one again. To understand what John is telling us about the work of Christ on the cross, you have to understand that John presents his gospel as new Genesis and new Exodus. In Genesis, God builds a garden sanctuary out of chaos where heaven and earth meet. He enters the world he created in harmony with creation. And in Exodus, he brings his people out of bondage through the Passover and he tabernacles with them in the wilderness. He puts his presence in their midst once again. And he calls them to be his image bearers in the world once again. Adam and Eve on day six of creation are made in the image of God. And he entrusts them with the care for all of creation. And in the Exodus, the people of God are called out of bondage. He puts his presence in their midst once again. And he calls them to bear his image in the world. Genesis begins with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. In Genesis, God enters chaos, creates a garden sanctuary, 
where heaven and earth are one and God is there. So John tells us the word became flesh. Heaven re-enters the world and the image of God comes to town. On day six, Pilate brings Jesus before the people and says, Behold the man. Pilate, without even knowing it, on the sixth day, declares, Behold the man. The image of God, once again on day six, enters into creation, declaring that new creation is upon us. God entering a world that is about to be made new. In Exodus... The people are in bondage. And it is through miracles that culminate in the Passover that they are delivered from exile and called to the promised land. In the same way, the miracles of Jesus culminate in the Passover where he is the lamb and we are delivered from exile and called to the promised land. At the Last Supper, Jesus declares that he is the bread and wine. The bread is about provision in the process of leaving exile. The Israelites eat unleavened bread at the Passover. They eat it on their way out of Egypt. And God gives them manna in the wilderness. Jesus in his ministry says, I am the bread of life. And at the Last Supper, he says, the unleavened bread is his body. Likewise, the Passover was about a covering and a mark to protect us from the angel of death. In the book of Exodus, the blood of the lamb is, is taken with a, a bit of hyssop and pasted on the doorposts so that when the angel of death sees it, it will pass over. And in the Last Supper, Jesus says the wine is his blood of the new covenant poured out for us. You see, we talk about communion and the forgiveness of sins. And there is forgiveness of sins, but there's more than the forgiveness of sins. See, at Passover, we were delivered from exile and started to go home to the promised land. This is about more than our sins being taken away. It's about bringing us home from exile into God's promised land. So Jesus goes to the cross as the Passover lamb, calls us out of exile and reestablishes our identity as his image bearers in the world and leads us to the promised land. The theme of new creation and new exodus are the very reasons why John centers his entire gospel on the work of Jesus in Jerusalem around the temple and helps us to see that Good Friday, the culmination of new creation and new exodus are occurring. But number two, Jesus takes away our sins. John chapter 2 verse 29 tells us, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. At the beginning of Christ's ministry, he is depicted for the role he will play in the atonement for our sins. On Yom Kippur, the sins of the people are placed on a goat that is then kicked out and driven into the wilderness. And in John chapter 19, Jesus is taken outside the city to a place called Golgotha, where he bears the sins of humanity. Jesus, on Good Friday, takes away our sins. But number three, on Good Friday, Jesus declares the day of the Lord and that the harvest has come. In John chapter 4, the apostles find Jesus talking to a Samaritan woman and they don't know what to say. 
So in starting in verse 31, Jesus says this. Or John says this. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until the harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Jesus appeals to the harvest imagery drawing from the Old Testament prophets. At the end of the age, on the day of the Lord, there would be a harvest of God's people. They would be gathered from the ends of the earth. Those who recognize his redemption would be brought into God's redemptive community. He does this for the outcast woman. And that's the thing he is here to do. This is the work he is finishing. Unleashing the harvesting of God's people from among the nations. Pulling out God's people. Pulling them together. Taking the outsider and making them insiders. Taking the unclean and making them clean. Pulling people from the ends of the earth to form his redemptive community. The day of the Lord has come and the harvest has begun. Number four, Jesus declares healing and restoration are occurring. In John chapter 5, Jesus heals an invalid man who can't walk at the Bethesda pool. As an invalid, he could not enter into the temple courts. He was considered unclean and he was often left out of religious ceremonies. And they often pushed him to the outskirts of the city. Jesus heals him, which allows him to be restored both physically and spiritually. And when challenged about this, Jesus replies, John 5, 36. I have testimony weightier than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to finish. The very works that I am doing testify that the Father has sent me. His ministry manifests signs of this healing and restoration, a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. The broken made whole. The physical limitations no longer defining our relationship to God. Cancer no longer having a hold on our destiny. The things that limit us, control us, and otherwise determine our worth no longer define us as God restores us, us to the redemptive community. At the cross on Good Friday, God declares that healing and restoration are upon us. And number five, being fully known and knowing fully. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. And then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Here, the shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, not for atonement, but for protection. He refuses to leave us to face danger alone. He risks his life. He rescues his beloved sheep from the wolves who would prey on them. And not only that, he bothers to know each one and to be known by each one, to be fully known and to know fully. But not only that, number six, that we are lovingly protected. 
Sometimes when you talk about the death of Jesus, people hear you saying God hated humanity and so he killed his son. The Bible never says that, but sometimes people take it that way. But when you look at what Jesus says in John chapter 10, you see something completely different. Jesus said he would lay down his life for his sheep, depicting a sacrificial rescue for those he knows intimately and cares for deeply. We are fully known and fully loved. Nothing to hide, nothing he doesn't already know about us, but fully loved nonetheless and protected by a love that will not leave us alone. In John chapter 10, when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd and I will lay down my life for my sheep, he does not talk about atonement of sins, but he talks about us being fully known and fully loved, and that as he dies for us, he dies to protect us and save us from the wolves. And number seven, evil is faced and its power is destroyed. In John chapter 12, some Greeks come to inquire about Jesus. They want to meet this Galilean preacher they've heard about, but Jesus puts them off. And this is what he says in John chapter 12, starting in verse 31. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. This harkens back to the Old Testament prophets yet again. When the judgment of God was to come, wrongs would be made right. Evil would be called out. Justice would be served. This gets back to Genesis, where Satan is cast out from the garden. And it gets back to Exodus, where Pharaoh is confronted by Moses. In John chapter 13 and verse 27, Satan is there at the Last Supper, just like he was in the garden in the book of Genesis. The other Gospels don't tell us this detail, but John does. And it's not an accident, but fits in his framing of new Genesis and new Exodus. Jesus says when he is lifted up, the prince of this world would be driven out. The rulers of this world will be defeated and he will draw people to himself. Captivity must be undone for people to be drawn to him. And that's why Jesus doesn't meet with the Greeks that day. Their time will come. But first he has to disarm the dark powers of this world and release us from captivity. That's why in John 18 and 19, there's a back and forth between Pilate and Jesus, the high priests and Jesus much like there was a back and forth between Moses and the Pharaoh. Pilate, like Pharaoh, represents the power of this world, its dominion, its control. And Jesus, like Moses in Exodus, faces those powers and delivers us from bondage. Number eight, friendship and mission. In John 15, 13 and 15, Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know what his master's business is. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. God demonstrates his love for us in laying down his life for us as friends, not as atonement for sin, but as a friend. While it would be generous and kind, entirely undeserved and gracious, for Jesus to die in atonement for my sin. It's an entirely different thing for him to die for me as a friend. By sealing our friendship with him through his death, 
he invites us into his mission. This is the restoration of our humanity. You see, in Genesis on day six, people were made in the image of God. They were placed in the world to care and manage for creation as God would. But things go awry, and there's enmity between creation and man. And now working and caring for creation becomes backbreaking. But in his death, Jesus seals our friendship with him. He calls us to own his cause, and he reestablishes the image of God in us so we can return to our appointed role as image bearers, his caretakers in the world. Jesus says in John 15 again, verse 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. Jesus' death on the cross doesn't just pay for my sin. It seals me in friendship with him. He says he's going to die. He says greater love has no one than this, than to lay his life down for his friends, to die for his friends. So when Jesus dies on the cross, he doesn't just pay for my sins, but he seals me in friendship with him, making me a partner in his work in the world, restoring to me what was lost in Eden. But number nine, eternal life. In his last meal with his disciples in John chapter 17, John tells us this. After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. By finishing the work, eternal life is given to us and we are brought into the knowledge of the one true God. Just like with the shepherd imagery, Jesus talks about us knowing God. At the cross, we are given eternal life and brought into the knowledge of God. And number 10... Jesus is laid in the tomb on Good Friday as darkness comes over the earth and, he's enter, and he enters into rest on the seventh day. Just like God in creation rested on the seventh day, Jesus can rest because his work is done. It is finished. So when we look at Good Friday, we understand the glory of what Christ did on the cross. We see his finished work. Not just the forgiveness of our sins, but so much more. The living presence of God has re-entered into creation and once again his image has been placed in the midst of it all. The lamb has taken away the sin of the world. The harvest has begun and the redemptive community is being reestablished. The broken are healed and humanity is restored as God's image bearers. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The sacrificial love of a God who knows you intimately and is known by you. Evil is driven out. The dark forces of this world are stared down and captivity is released. Our good friend lays down his life for us, sealing our identity as friends rather than servants. 
and we are given eternal life and become the glory of God, and we too may enter into the heavenly rest. The message this evening, church, is simple. It is finished. How many of us actually live every part of our lives, our relationships, how we approach work and vocation, how we relate to our family and loved ones, how we deal with past trauma and disappointment from a place of deep peace and rest because you know in your bones, in your heart of hearts, and in the depths of your soul that the most important and significant thing in your life has already been done. Can you imagine living from that place of deep rest? That is the shalom of God. I'm fully known by God, so I don't need to keep trying to get his attention. I am God's friend, so I don't have to impress him. My sins have been taken away, and the evil that opposes me has been disarmed, so I no longer have to live in shame of what has beset me. I can look at my brokenness and know that God has declared me well and secured my place as part of his redemptive community. I have had my humanity restored, and I am called to bear his image in the world, joining him in the restoration of all things. And in the midst of my uncertainty and wavering, he stands by me as good shepherd and good friend, giving me eternal life and calling me to glory. On Good Friday, so much more happens than just the forgiveness of our sins. So much more captivating than just being saved from the clutches of hell and way more necessary than the purest morality. My fear, church, is that many of us live like the work of the cross was left unfinished. Some of us live like the work of the cross was unfinished because we are trying to do the work we thought Jesus should have done in our lives. Some of us live like the work of the cross is unfinished because we think we have to clean ourselves up because what Christ did wasn't enough. Some of us live like the work of the cross was unfinished because although he saved us from sin, we do not embrace anything else that the cross was finishing in our lives. We have not embraced friendship with God. We have not embraced what it means to be restored to God as his image bearers in the world. We have not taken seriously the call to embrace all that God was in the world, that he has left us the message of reconciliation. We live like the work of the cross is unfinished because while we hold to the forgiveness of sins, we neglect everything else he's done on the cross. So many of us live like the work of the cross is unfinished because we live without the peace that knows that God has taken care of everything. And maybe this Good Friday, some of us do need to remember the forgiveness of our sins. But many of us, I'm afraid, need to remember that there was so much more on the cross. When Jesus says, it is finished, before the resurrection on Easter, he declared the coming of the kingdom of God, his role as our good shepherd, that we would be fully known and fully loved, his role as the good friend who would lay down his life for us, that we would no longer be called servants but friends, that we would have restored to us what was taken from us in Eden, that we would be restored as God's image bearers in a world that needs care, that in the face of brokenness, 
we would be declared whole at the cross more than our forgiveness of sins was accomplished. And when Jesus went to the cross and when he breathed his last, he said, it is finished. May we, as the people of God, live in the peace that comes from those who understand. Nothing has been left for us to do but simply to rest in his care. Let us pray. Father, we so often come to the cross and we talk about the forgiveness of our sins, which was amazing and generous and kind. But so often, Father, we have sold short what you were doing on that day in Golgotha. Father, some of us tonight need to be reminded that you died for our sins and that you have taken them away from us as far as east is from the west. But Father, many more of us need to remember that you died as a good shepherd who knew us fully, loved us fully, and died for us in love. Many more of us need to be remember, reminded that you died calling us your friends, inviting us into the mission of representing you in the world. Many more of us need to be reminded, God, that you restored to us the call to be the image bearers of God, that you gave us back what was taken from us in Eden. God, that you looked at Satan and the dark powers of this world and you released us from their captivity. Father, this evening, forgive us for the ways in which we have lived like it wasn't finished on the cross. Forgive us for our tendency to say, we'll finish what you left undone. Forgive us for the ways in which we make our lives hectic, trying to do what you have already done. And this evening, Father, Help us to once again surrender all to you because you alone have finished the work that needed to be done. You alone, God, in Jesus, our Savior and the hope of nations. We pray. Amen.